got to be something in this tape. Probably encoded. So what do we do? Have a decoded ticket to the FBI and we'll be heroes. How do we do that? put this in really knew what he was doing look at those connections could be used to store information hi again everybody welcome to the IWMP podcast my name is matthew porter and i'm ian porter i'm his dad he's my son and i've once again brought him back to the 1980s to watch a movie absolutely and if you do hear any uh, audio hiccups or anything in this episode, just remember that taking the podcast out and blowing on the connectors actually does more damage to it in the long run than any good it can do. You need an alcohol on a cotton swab for that sort of thing. Or alcohol in some application. <laughs> yeah, just in general. <laughs> <laughs> that always makes things sound better. Absolutely. But yeah, I, I get to make that because we're talking about something that has video games involved. It's a movie, but it also has video games. And this is a movie from 1984. And, you know, when I was first coming up with this podcast idea and proposing it to you, Ian, I was actually giving some serious thought about doing a podcast series about the movies of 1984, because there were so many noteworthy movies. Part of it is when in my life 1984 occurred, you know, I was in the middle of, uh, of college, but there were a lot of really good movies in 1984. And because of that, some of the ones that would have received a lot of attention in other years can easily be overlooked because not everything is an Indiana Jones movie or a Ghostbusters or one of the other movies that came out in 84. But, but there are a lot of good movies in that year. That is a dense year. And I am already, I already am known a little, at least I have been no noted before, as being a person who is seen now in my age group, more of those than some people expect. And I love that fact. That's definitely just a fun year. And there's a, there's a style and a tone that, that, that those movies have. This, this peak of a kind of pacing and cinematography that I think you saw a little bit of later, but other projects were responding as much to the number of things that came out in 1984 as they were continuing the trend of what had generated those movies to begin with. So it's it's a it's a dense and it is an influential year cinema cinema wise and I'm always excited to see the films from that stretch because I mean this this movie was shown alongside The Last Starfighter. <laughs> and that right there tells you like a tone an era and I love that other movie. That's probably a spoiler for an episode we're going to do, but yeah, we have not talked about The Last Starfighter on the podcast yet, but that is a movie that we, you and I went out to the Alamo to see that on a big screen. And yeah, that's the kind of thing that gave rise to the podcast. So the fact that this was put right alongside it, I'm like, I, I admit, I already, I went in with a bit of a, ooh, this is going to be fun. <laughs> well, um, this is a family movie. <laughs> says right, says it right there in the IMDb, family. Um... <laughs> Right? I'm uncertain <laughs> of that one, actually. That's going to require some conversation. That's going to require some conversation, because Cloak and Dagger is all of that type of exciting movie I was describing, but it is also way harsher than I was ready for. 
Yeah, the IMDb categories or tags for this are action, adventure, crime, family, mystery, and thriller. You know? Uh, uh, let me confirm that there is a comma between crime and family, because if you told me this was a crime family, I believe you. If you just tell me that this is of those two categories, I question the second. No, they, they are separate separate tags. Oh, boy. So, yeah, we're talking about Cloak and Dagger from 1984. Uh, and this is a movie that I think one of the reasons why it is sometimes overlooked is that it is mischaracterized yeah and it's it's understandable given the fact that it stars henry thomas who's better known as the kid in et oh yeah people go into a movie in the early 80s that stars henry thomas and they're going to expect certain things and a movie studio greenlights a movie that is starring henry thomas they're going to market it in certain ways and i don't know that any of those did cloak and dagger any favors no, I mean, it is it is really easy just looking at the surface to be able to market this as a, as an E.T., as a, I guess, kind of a, a, I mean, War Games gets heavy, but I almost think Cloak and Dagger is way heavier. On a, it, it's a different scale, yeah. I would say. War Games, and we, again, it's another movie we haven't yet talked We're gonna about. We're going to have to make will. a reference to a bunch of things yeah. that are like... Like th this is yes. trailers season for the IAWMP <laughs> podcast because we're gonna have to talk so. about a bunch of other stuff that will come back later. Yeah, War Games is is heavier if only because the scale is different. They're talking about global thermonuclear war in Cloak and Dagger. The MacGuffin is important. It's not as big as a computer's going to launch nukes and destroy the world, but it's important. But the real tension in Cloak and Dagger comes entirely from the personal danger that our characters are in and the interesting ways that our characters respond to that personal danger. The post-narrative cleanup of something like War Games is actually a lot simpler on the character level than the severe amount of trauma that our main character goes through in Cloak and Dagger. And... The situation in general is a lot more that the fact that it is in some ways smaller scale, but that means that everything happens closer. That does some stuff. And before we go any farther, it's a movie. It's hard to avoid spoilers for the movie Cloak and Dagger. Absolutely. So, yeah, We'll be talking about plot points. And uh, this is a movie with a lot of interesting twists. So if you have any interest in it, consider that before you listen to the rest of the podcast and then come back later and, and listen to the podcast. Uh, alongside Henry Thomas is Dabney Coleman in a really, really clever and well-done dual role. Hmm. He plays Henry Thomas's father. Yes. Who is a master sergeant, I think, in the, in the Air Force. Uh, he's he's, some, an, he's, he's an, a non-com in the Air Force. He's an, he's an Air Force air traffic controller. Air traffic controller? Oh. Yes. Oh, I thought he was like working on uh, leading a group that was working on a plane or something when we saw him at work. Welcome to my confusion because <laughs> they reference him as that early and the and the Wikipedia and such mark that as this thing he's referenced as. But we do see him working on a thing later. Okay, well, so I'll, maybe he has avionics experience and he was helping out somewhere. Who knows? Installing a guidance system. Maybe. Yeah, who who knows? knows? So, yeah, he is a um, he's in the Air Force and uh, he and his son whose mom has passed away, live in San Antonio, Texas. 
But that's not the only role that Dabney Coleman plays, is it? We actually see him in the other role first as Jack Flack, who is pretty much a, like, yay American Air Force James Bond. Yeah, he's the American James Bond who would be totally captivating to uh, an 11 or 12-year-old in Texas. And the whole opening is this, like, encounter at the at the entrance to a mansion where an event is going on where he comes in he takes out a guard and that's the first moment where i'm like huh because honestly the guard takedown's a little like more intense than i expected and so i'm like okay this movie doesn't skimp on its action oh great and they go through this like back and forth little gun duel at the steps of the mansion and He's making his escape, and then giant polyhedra fall from the sky, and it turns out that this entire opening sequence where we meet this Jack Flack character and how man of action he is in these dangerous situations of grabbing the intelligence and such is a role-playing game that our main character is playing. And my mind goes to, oh, oh, this is going to be, this movie is just going to be like Timmy's first Mazes and Monsters. Okay, I can run with this. Yeah, it does seem like it's going to be be like that because you know, this kid is obsessed with the character of of Jack Flack, who's in this uh, cloak and dagger tabletop game. He's got the cloak and dagger video game, and in the kid's mind, Jack Flack looks just like his dad. Jack yeah. Flack is his dad as a super secret agent. Absolutely, this he the cat. He really does love his dad and look up to his dad. He's just not looking up to who his dad is now. He's looking up to the, 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 the collection of concepts he has about his dad and is applying those turned up to 11 with a, a kid-like attachment to the, the flashy and dramatic aspects without some of the real world knowledge that actually cements who his dad is and what his dad is doing for why. And I go back and forth, depending on when I'm watching this, whether I feel as if Jack Flack represents the way that I forget. What is Henry Thomas's character's name? Anyway, I forget Davy, Davy Osborne. Ah, I should have remembered that because it was what was written on the, the softball or the baseball that lets the bad guys track him down. But I, I go back and forth as to whether I think Jack Flack is the way Davy sees his dad, but doesn't quite admit consciously. Or Jack Flack is what he thinks he needs his dad to be and his dad should be, consciously or not. I think very much over the course of it, he starts as that second. He starts as what he thinks his dad should be. He becomes an embodiment of a severe number of insecurities and concerns that he ha- that Davy has over the course of what's going on and becomes an embodiment a, a a repository of a whole lot of things Davy can't process right now and at the very end he kind of accepts that the things he liked of Jack Flack are the things that his dad actually was but has a bit more of a sense to it because he's come to a weird sen- terms of the things he attached to the concept of Jack Flag separate from what 
the origin was. He kind of hard resets Jack Flack in the story here, and that means that he hard resets his connection to his dad. And of course, a big part of this for a kid that age has to be about himself, too. What is the model of being an adult man going to be for him? Is it his dad? Is it this vision of his dad that he sees as Jack Flack? Or is it something else entirely? And that, of course, how you see your dad and and uh, how you relate to him is a has a big impact on how any kid is going to see themselves in the future in that way. Absolutely. It, it, the, honestly, this is a great example of a. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go deep into the paint here for a moment. This is a fine example of a concept within adolescent psychology, where the concept of the self that Davy is developing is being molded based on a preset form of values yet what that form of values is in terms of the larger picture he is incorporating in is not yet confirmed yet he is attempting to shape who he is based on an outside force without understanding all the other outside forces that that same concept of self will have to nest with he is really early form of the same sort of thing you see as a, a later stage of development he is becoming aware of who he is, and he's becoming aware of the idea that that means that who he is is something definable. And it may seem like we're getting very deeply into this, and we're, we're pulling a whole lot out of the fact that in this movie, the kid's obsessed with a character in a game, and he also has a hot and cold relationship with his dad. But the movie makes this very important because Jack Flack isn't just a character in a tabletop game or a video game for Davey. Davey talks to Jack Flack Jack, on a regular basis. Jack Flack is a full-on uh, visual and auditory hallucination for Davey on a scale that makes me concerned. <laughs> Davey's mind is putting a lot more effort into creating a representation of Jack Flack and his surroundings in order to have connection with than I think is healthy. <laughs> Davy's got some issues to start. And Jack Flack is is the one who is more often telling Davy he's got to do things on his own. He can't count on his dad to do this stuff because dad is just going to follow the rules and make rules and be a dad. Whereas you've got to be a man of action, Davy. Just like me. You want to be like me or do you want to be like your dad? It is remarkable how Jack Flack develops from the shining example to Davy, to a very well-dressed devil on his shoulder. Yes. Very cool costuming. Very cool costuming. Actually, they they, they do kind of adjust his costuming. I think they go a little darker on some of the costume tones and such. It's also just the lighting of where it is, but they they shift how he looks a little over the course of it. Yeah, Jack Flack, both in how we see him and how Davy sees him, shifts from this can-do-no-wrong, super-competent secret agent guy to somebody whose judgment Davy learns to turn against. Mm-hmm. And that makes it a really, really interesting role for Dabney Coleman. And I think he does a really good job playing these two characters because they have to be very similar in a lot of ways because they are Davy's dad and a kind of a projection of Davy's dad in Davy's mind. And yet their attitudes and tone and speech and everything. Just if you heard a line from either one, you would know instantly which character Coleman is playing at that point. 
Mm-hmm. And that's not to take anything away from Henry Thomas's performance. Oh, He's no, Henry it. Thomas does a great job with this, too. He, uh, he co- this whole thing couldn't work if Thomas wasn't able to play off the combination of absolutely certain followed by absolutely out of his depth. And the fact that we get to see him make high stakes decisions in the moment in any given scene, but then we also get to see his way of making moral decisions change over the course of the movie. I think that's really good acting on, uh, on Thomas's part. Oh, absolutely. But all of this wonderful narrative arcing is built around a, a, a story of intrigue. A story of intrigue revolving around a game cartridge. And this is where it gets interesting, because in looking up this movie, this movie is a readaptation of a previous film. This story is based on a short called The Boy Who Cried Murder, which was originally filmed and released in 1949 as The Window. So it's not like this is the first time that some of these plot points have been hit, but they add this other layering and some modern technological gadgetry to it. But it starts out with Davy being sent sent to pick up stuff by the owner of the video game store he hangs out at. And while he's at this other at this office building, I'm still a little confused as to what that initial like request was. Yeah, he was sent to go to the the um, the headquarters downtown of some electronics company to pick up a copy of their latest catalog. And of course, Davey makes this into a spy adventure. He's hiding behind post boxes and radioing his friend, who is just, she's just exasperated by all of this. <laughs> it's adorable. But while he's in there, he sees a man running away, a man in a lab coat run away from two other men. And, and this man, who's very, very hurt, hands Davy a game cartridge. And that scene is so well shot because Davy's on the stairwell because he decided not to take the elevator for operational security. And he's looking out the window, seeing in the reflection of the next building what's happening in the office one floor above where he's standing. And it's really, really well shot. But yeah, this guy who's, who's trying to get away from the bad guys that Davy was able to see uh, shaking him down for something up, up above. He's been shot, and he hands this thing to Davy. And it's also really well shot there to tie it into the the arcing we were describing first, because we watch Davy in the reflection, seeing the reflection of what's happening above him. We see Jack Flack next to Davy, kind of height, kind of talking to him about what they're seeing, and almost psyching him up about it or out about it. But we don't see Jack Flack's reflection in the building on the opposite side. Wonderful composite work. They do a lot of, of great things with that. Very well shot, especially some of the scenes where Dabney Coleman is there as Davy's uh, dad. And he's also there as Jack Flack. And the way they make these very careful cuts and camera moves and uh, presumably a, a good a reverse angle double for, for uh, Dabney Coleman it's really well shot, and that's the first really, really impressive example is what you just described. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he witnesses this, and then this man runs down and hands him a 
Atari 5200 cartridge of cloak and dagger and tells him some numbers and then tells Davy to run. And Davy runs only for the guy who handed it to him to get shot and fall down the stairs to the bottom. Down through the middle of them. So Davy runs to the police. Yeah, he goes right to the security folks in the office building. And no body is found. This has been covered up, has been cleaned up very quickly and very professionally. That was, that was very creepy. And you've already watched Davy hallucinate a guy. So you're a little uncertain of Davy at this point, but he does have a physical cartridge in his hands. That's the physical evidence. Yep. He's, he has gotten something and he's lost something because he gets this cartridge, but he inadvertently leaves behind a softball with his name and address written on it, or at least his name. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this era of phone books, I assumed it was easy enough to pull it up based on his name. So. Right. Yeah. How many Davy Osborns are there in, uh, or how many Osborns with a child named Dave are in uh, San Antonio? Probably not that many. Mm-hmm. But he brings this cartridge back to his, uh, to his friend at the video game shop, who opens it up and finds an extra chip inside. And I'm going to pause for a moment and discuss here because I looked up about this game cartridge. <laughs> the game cartridge that doesn't exist. Because Cloak and Dagger, the game existed. All the footage we see is from the arcade version. And this was produced in connection with Atari to build a proper copy of this game for the Atari 5200 that never got finished and never got released. (laughs) There's a lot of that in the history of the 5200, isn't there? There is. But here's an interesting thing. Yeah. The interaction between Universal and Atari for this uh, project specifically paved the way for Atari to have a group of people who are tasked with interacting with film companies. If it wasn't for Cloak and Dagger, we wouldn't have things like Tron and its video game (laughs) tie-ins, because this paved part of that pathway. Oh, no, I thought the Tron games that ran on the Atari 2600 were uh, released by Mattel. That might be the case, but that might have been then Mattel working to have a competition to Atari if Atari's doing this in the market that that very well could be i can check this out because i'm pretty sure i've got a copy of the original atari 2600 tron game downstairs yeah so so okay this would this was atari com- competing with mattel and other groups to have video game tie-ins oh kind of do it themselves not just license it out to others to right so on their console so uh video game tie-ins with films become kind of part of what this was fighting for. A video game tie-in with a film starring Henry Thomas, what could go wrong? Hey. <laughs> oh, boy. But yeah, it looks like a pretty cool game, this uh, uh, Cloak and Dagger uh, 5200 video game. Yeah, it looked very uh, almost capture the flaggy in terms of gameplay. Mm-hmm. But it's got this like very cool little elevator loading screen. And... The, the num- very quickly, the guy at the store figures out that the way things are set up, the number that Henry was given, or Davy was given, is a score. 
So the, this guy who apparently doesn't need to do anything at the front of his shop all day, like sits down and starts playing the game. And that's a whole thing. I think actually I might have skipped a portion where Davey tries to play it at home and gets in a fight with his dad. Yeah, and his dad locks up his video game console and stuff. Yeah. Doesn't want him playing these games because they're getting him involved in this dangerous stuff like this fantasy about a murder at the electronics company headquarters. But Davey now has a tech friend who's kind of confirming some of this. He's got a man in a chair. But... The the bad guys have already like tracked him down. Was Davy home when the people went to his house? I don't I don't know. I, th- I don't remember. I, I thought he went back home, and that's when the bad guys showed oh, up. Okay, that's it. Like Davy goes back home, and then the bad guys break in, demand to know where the game cartridge is, and pretty much just wreck the house, which is terrifying. But Davy manages to escape. Um, his little friend next door does not. No. They, they wind up getting her and contacting Davy to uh, to make a swap. You want your friend back safe and sound, you'll give us that game cartridge. So he pulls some mild shoplifting and grabs a sealed copy of the game from his uh, from his tech friend's store, ditches the packaging, which he has to take out of the full cardboard box, toss it, and unwrap it from a cellophane wrapper and toss it. And he brings this now unwrapped cartridge with him for the handoff. And of course, if he's going to be stealing the cartridge from the store for the sake of of saving a life or something, he's doing that at the urging of Jack Flack. Exactly. Who's standing there in the store pointing at the, car- the, the cartridge box saying, you know what to do. You can get a decoy right here. You got to hand him something. Which is really the first time Jack Flack tells him to do something outright. No? Bad? This is the start of Jack Flack's darker edge there. And yet, if it really is a game cartridge versus a life, it's oh, not yeah. that difficult. But it is, that's a big threshold for a 12-year-old. Mm-hmm. And that's where it's like, that's where I'm like, wow, the stakes in this are really moving quickly. This movie is really starting to throw some some action. The 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 rampaging through the house was... It was definitely more intense than something like a Home Alone, but this isn't too wild. But then we get to the handoff scene, and I'm going, whoa, this, this is getting heavy. Because this is full-on pulling a gun on a kid. Yeah, they're, they're, they're threatening to, to kill her. He's threatening to drop the, uh, the cartridge into a lake. They come to an agreement he hands over the cartridge. Very, very tense scene. Very tense. Very smart negotiation on Davy's part. But this is where I also think, really, the friend at the store? Because he apparently has a cellophane packing machine. Of course he does. How else is he going to sell returned items as brand new? Because there's a sticker <laughs> on the back of the cartridge for the store that Davy didn't bother to take off. So the bad guys know now that they got a decoy. And Davey is running away via bus with his friend in tow from very active car pursuit. Meanwhile, the other guy goes over to the store and takes the cartridge from dead 
tech friend's body that he killed. And I'm like, oh my goodness, that's straight (laughs) up. Wow, that is straight up a bullet goes into the monitor the guy was looking at in our kids' family film. This is darker than I was ready for. That was one that they did not show on camera, but it was almost more shocking the way that they shot it without having the victim on camera. Yeah. But yeah, that was the point where I I think I've made the comment, oh, family film. <laughs> says yeah. so right here in the IMDb. This, my goodness, this this is where it's like, do not think this film will pull any punches. If they're going to do spy drama, they're going to do spy drama and they're going to do actually some serious conflict going on. And the kind of movie this is and the way it's shot, if you don't, if you, if it doesn't strike you during the initial scene in the stairwell, then it would strike you during the negotiation in the garden where they, they're uh, exchanging the cartridge for his friend. And if it doesn't strike you, then it's going to strike you during some of the chase scenes that we get through San Antonio. That we're watching a Hitchcock movie. Yes. Stylistically, tonally, in terms of tempo, this is somebody who, this was directed with a great deal of study of Hitchcock and the way he puts together a movie like this. And he does a terrific job. I'm not saying that it's a Hitchcock pastiche or it is uh, or anything negative about that. This is... A movie, uh, a a spy thriller with very high personal stakes, and naturally enough, the very good direction of this movie has been influenced by the best director of that kind of movie there's been. So I think I, it really strikes me, wow, yeah, this guy loves Hitchcock, and I'm here to, to love uh, love this movie along with him. Absolutely, this this movie is cinematography wise and cinematically. A brilliant, brilliant tribute to that sort of thing. It's not a it's not a scene remake or anything, but it gets that feeling, it gets that tone, it gets that whole styling and pulls it into the styling of those, you know, nineteen eighty-four films we're discussing here in a way that is very seamless. Right. And this was directed by Richard Franklin. So I kudos to Richard Franklin for directing probably the best Hitchcock movie for the 15 years that preceded this. Oh, yeah. And we should note that before his friend in the game store meets his end, we see him reach the required high score to unlock what's in this cartridge. Which, this seems like a very silly way for the you know the the United States government or I guess they weren't the ones hiding it here this seems just a very weird way to pass off this information I got yeah, yeah I think it was you know they they got the information they needed some way to smuggle it so that it was encoded on this chip and the chip was put into a video game cartridge which you could then access it by getting a certain score on the video game yeah that's a little bit yeah you, there's a lot of ways you can smuggle something that don't require you to play an Atari game for a couple of hours. This almost would have worked a little better. I mean, that's like kind of the silliest part of their spy thriller. It would almost have worked better if he opened it up and it was just a small roll of microfilm hidden atop the game cartridge disc, at which point he could have 
plucked it out and said, oh, I've got stuff to be able to to work with this because I've got all this tech junk around me. I know I have something. And you just make the time it took for him to play it be the amount of time it took for him to pull up some stuff for like the old projector and be able to display some of this. It would have worked. There are at least two ways why they, two reasons why they did it the way they did. One is they probably thought they were promoting this video game. Yeah, Atari was working on it actively. Did they have some Easter egg if you, when you actually reached that score? If that would have been awesome. It. And B, it was just, it was just cool. It was a great way to add that time delay and that, that ticking clock of the friend playing the game and when is he going to get to that point? And what he sees when he gets to that point. It's not, wonder of wonders, it's not a missile guidance system, which is the the classic, at least in the 60s and 70s, the classic technological MacGuffin, because it can be any size and shape and nature that the, the writers want, want it to be. It's uh, like designs for a stealth aircraft. With missiles. <laughs> which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. But it's the, it's the whole like rotating wireframe of this stealth aircraft that's like, pausing to then pull up data about how it's constructed at different points and i'm like <laughs> yeah, i'm thinking an atari 2600 can render this yeah that's can what we I please wanted. see that please. in the game <laughs> like uh, this is an atari 2600 doing stuff i'd see later as you know the boss in a star fox and i'm like oh. <laughs> that, that, that's where it's like okay they're, they're definitely showing the arcade version here because they can't do that on this console and having set all this up, we have our MacGuffin, we have bad guys who are chasing the kid through uh, San Antonio, trying to get it back. We almost don't have to talk a whole lot about the rest of the plot. Those are, there's a lot of plot to talk about, but it, it sets up that kind of um, increasing pace, increasing stakes, mm-hmm. and what is interesting is not as much the unpredictability of the plot, though it's not predictable, it's watching Davy have to respond to it. Mm-hmm. That's what makes this movie unique. Because Davy is a sharp kid, and he is very resourceful in the moment. But as he's running through what I can only describe as the most questionable San Antonio tourism board ad I've ever seen... <laughs> I mean, they hit all the landmarks. They mentioned some of them. I think there was a bit of a, if we're set here, we're going to get some support for being set here by the place. But oh, yeah. There's the river walk, and there's the boat rides on the river, and there's the Alamo, and all the things you would see in San Antonio. Absolutely. It reminded me of the time I went there. I was like, oh, yeah, it's that thing again. But there's a lot of, like, he is on a boat. He figures out where to move chairs. He f- figures out how to run during a distraction. And he's almost, by the end of some of these things, coming to certain things faster than Jack Flack is. And Flack is more flustered. And Flack is more ready to go a step further than he has to. And yet, Flack, it's all in Davy's mind. Exactly. So this is Davy struggling to make life and death decisions that are difficult to make and having to find some way to get away from the bad guys that are going to result in someone else's death, mm-hmm. a bad guy's death, and yet save Davy, and in saving Davy, give Davy a chance to save somebody else. It, the, the moment that really started to, 
to confirm the change for me is when Davy goes over to finds the bad guy's car and goes to hide, having seen the dead body of his tech friend in the trunk. But Davy still realizes that the way to hide is to climb in the back. And he's stuck in there, and then he asks Jack Flack for help. And all Jack Flack can do is complain about how cramped it is in the back here. (laughs) And Davy kind of is thinking out what to do. And he's he's actually taking the action a little before Jack Flack, in his own mind, is suggesting what to do. About how to do stuff in that trunk. He's already bracing and grabbing the trunk lid down before Jack Flack tells him to do that. And it's like, that's where it's, yeah, Jack Flack is definitely just in Davy's mind. And Davy's in the moment more than the Jack Flack part of his head is. And that is a, di- a terrifying thing, but a powerful thing for Davy. In that it sense. really is Davy taking that power back from Jack Flack. It's, you know, this is my decision. This is my course of action. I'm not just doing this because the secret agent character I idolize is telling me I should. I'm doing this because it is the best thing to do in this terrible situation. If if the Jack Flack is the concept of what he thinks he should become as a man, he's becoming he's becoming aware and realizing what parts of that are achievable and reasonable to do and what parts need to be discarded because they don't do anybody himself or others any good. He's honestly coming to better terms with like a a clearer picture of who he should be in himself than in the character that he kept idolizing. And that's the best way to respond to any role models, whether it's a father or a hero. Figure out what to learn and figure out where you need to make your own decisions and, and be different. And it's not even that he's completely rejecting the, the parts of Jack Flack. He is still responding to the dangerous situation He's still honestly becoming this you know, young man of action. He needs to be in this moment. It's just that he's acknowledging the, the flaws of that characterization and moving to a better place with them. He's avoiding the toxic parts, and that's much better. And yet we see scenes in which he does what Jack Flack recommends that he does, but it's only after a great deal of soul-searching and difficult decision-making on Davy's part because he's no longer taking everything that Jack Flack suggests at face value. It must be the right thing to do. Yeah, it might be the best thing to do here, but it's not an easy thing to decide to do. And the fact that Davy is the person taking the time to acknowledge the other options. If I'm in this situation, if I am pinned against a wall, is my best is my best option to return fire or flee or buy time for anyone else who needs it. And he's debating those. He directly debates that in that situation at one point. And that is important because sure, if he'd just gone with what he needed to in the moment, he might've had an outcome that was successful, but he'd have to live with the fact that there could have been other options that could have been better. He can, but and he can deal later with what he had to do there. But it wasn't the thing he 
want he, he the fact that he took the time to think about it makes Davy the better person than Jack Flack in that moment. And that is a powerful thing. And and even before that, there's the fact that Davy is struggling over whether to pick up the gun that's been dropped by the bad guy who was shot by the other bad guy. And Jack Flack is, of course, urging him to pick it up, and Davy's not sure he wants to. Every one of these decisions that he's making with or in spite of Jack Flack, the stakes are higher and higher. Davy avoids guns a, a lot in this, except when he really was forced into not having another option. This is, I mean, that is a scary thing. The, a, a kid with a firearm is something that you have to deal with as a visual in this movie. And a kid dealing with the power of that and the danger of that. But they very clearly show that that is not a good answer to these solutions. And that Davy thinks through things and finds better solutions to plenty of things when the gun was the quick option. And that's a, that's a good stance to have. And this is one of the things that walks us back from the, the, the suspicion that maybe Davy doesn't have a good grasp on reality. Because early on, he's playing his secret agent games, and he's using toy guns, and he's got a squirt gun filled with like red food coloring or stage blood or something, and, and he's got a, a softball that he's decided is a hand grenade. He's happy to play with all these things. He absolutely unequivocally knows the difference between playing with toy guns and even holding a real gun, let alone using it. This is a movie that has a remarkable amount of violence, but is excellent at showing the video games and gameplay do not cause violence aspect there, because Davy is aware of the difference, and definitely, I think that the fact that Davy hallucinates strongly is a different issue, but Davy's grasp on reality is not bad. And we say hallucinate, and that is how it's presented in the movie, I don't know that it's that extreme. I don't know that if really, really pressed, Davey wouldn't acknowledge, yeah, he's amazing. He's a character in a game that I play. It's fun to pretend to talk to him sometimes. Absolutely. By the end, I think he is legitimately, because Jack Flack takes fire for him. Yes, there there are some points there where you do start to wonder, how how real is Jack Flack, how real does Davy think Jack Flack is? Yeah, there are there are enough times at key moments to to raise those questions that it keeps it interesting. Because by the end of the large back and forth chase, Davy has not only avoided but led to the defeat of two of these henchmen, or all three, I believe, and has rejected comments by jack flack plenty of times is not taking suggestions from jack a lot more and in the end is actually actually like in his response to jack results in one of the distractions that wins but he rejects jack outright and smashes the figurine that's a powerful moment the moment he does so jack flack gets some crazy lines that i always hate it when they do this and when they stop believing which is a plural I was not ready for. He's talking about kids in the hole. And I'm like, uh... Yeah, some, suddenly it's kind of prefiguring uh, Toy Story and, and other things about the, 
the life cycle of toys in relation to children's imagination. Yeah, there's a little bit like we were. This came out with alongside the last Starfighter. Is Jack Flack some sort of like psychic parasite thing going on? <laughs> Are we getting sci-fi here? And it's like no, but we do watch Jack Flack go from an intangible imaginary character to imaginary character taking physical wound from the shots he just dealt with and bleeding out on the floor, which was dark. A family movie. Family Family film. You know, for kids. (laughs) Another movie we have to talk about at some point, probably. But... And that is, uh, that's definitely a turning point, because at that point, Davey's on his own, and he mm-hmm. knows it. And yet, he's on his own, having learned a lot from Jack Flack and from his father. Exactly. And in the end, okay, a, a whole side story, the best friend is amazing. Yes, she is. She is amazing, because she has this roll her eyes at everything uh, Davey's doing, but then we directly get her describing a, a later that, but he's interesting. Is he always like that? Usually. Doesn't it drive you crazy? Nah, he's the only boy in the neighborhood who isn't boring. I might roll this, roll my eyes at this stuff, but at least I have fun. He's crazy and embarrassing, but at least he's never boring. Exactly. And the bad guys have not are not done with threatening her to get at Davy. They planted a bomb in her house. A bomb in a uh, a radio that she brings with her because she plays with Davy. She understands to bring her equipment. So now she's got an explosive device. And Davy on his own is not focusing on stopping the bad guys that got away with the cartridge. He's focusing on saving his friend. Right. He's dealt with the, the various kind of middlemen and hench people. But the main bad guys are still out there, and they've got possession of the cartridge and are trying to get it out of the country. And I'm not gonna ex- I'm not gonna spoil the reveal of them, which I think is very clever, very well done. They are very smooth operator, unassuming people. So they're slipping their way through. They've done their handoff and they're making their way out. The friend gets there first. <laughs> She winds up in a large discussion with security. And there's this whole like exchange that happens as all of the storylines of the individual characters arrive at the airport all at once. We've got Davy, who has gone through this entire transformative experience and is thinking on his feet and thinking his priorities very clearly, but very selflessly because he's worried about the other people first. We've got our bad guys who are all certain that this pro- this operation, which has gone awry at various points because of a kid, is going to go smooth at this end now, or else we've, we've got the best friend who's just here for the ride, but very on top of her stuff. And we've got Davy's dad, who's gotten some messages here and is following along kind of a little bit of breadcrumb trail of what Davy's left behind, all arriving here around the same time it makes for a great uh final act and again the stakes keep getting higher personally for these characters and everybody gets to make important decisions absolutely everybody this movie becomes a very very hard line action 
spy thriller and ends with something that is just the tiniest touch later franchise Fast and the Furious in the right way. So we've got these distinctive, interesting characters. They have to make difficult decisions through an adventure in which the stakes keep getting higher and they each change based upon the decisions they make and the experiences they have. I mean, what more do you want from a story? This is terrific. Absolutely. Having finished this whole narrative, you get this this high-octane action, but honestly, it's that emotional core that drives you through it, I think. You're right. It's, it's the emotional point of the end of that movie more than the, the high-action beat that makes the difference. Mm-hmm. But that was, that, it's just a trip of a movie. And I feel like we're already leading into our final comments here, so... I think so, so we might as well make it official. Mm-hmm. Screen or no screen? Screen this film. I mean, in some ways, if, you're, if, if we're the way that you're coming to this film to see it, I think it'll be a little different, because you'll have some idea of what you're getting into. The shock of, this is darker than I was ready for, <laughs> was part of the experience for me, but I don't know if that is all the best for it. And that's where I really do hope that people listen to the spoiler warning at the beginning. Yeah, because the, this movie, the fact that it can have that impact is important to it, because it means that you're as unready for some of the things you're about to experience as our main character is. If you're in the mindset for thing A and you don't get that, you're put straight into thing B. You're feeling as uncertain as he is, and that's good. So I think we're in agreement about this movie. It is, it's often overlooked, especially for its time period, but by all means, uh, screen it. It is worth watching. So that brings up our, our second and usually more difficult question. Revive, reboot, or rest in peace? I real I can't figure out how you would revive this film. I mean, there's plenty of things that need to be dealt with. There are are international uh, intel smuggling rings using video game cartridges. There is a plane explosion that's going to get on national news. I think there is a lot of damage in some of the surrounding areas that are going to have to be cleaned up, <laughs> but I can't think of anything narratively that really opens itself up to later film in the same way. And I don't know if it really wants a remake because you'd have to either set it at the same time or try to set it now. But it's one of those films where the the arrival of wide use security cameras and cell phones kind of undercuts a lot. You can't get away with some of the stuff this film did. And I think you're going to get other stories that do this kind of narrative. So I guess it's a rest in peace. All I can do is hope that anything else that tries to tell a story about coming of age in the way this film did is able to do it as well as this film did. I agree that there are a lot of problems with, uh, with attempting to reboot this, to remake it in some way. Because if you're going to set it in the 80s, why bother? You've already got a really good version of that. And if you're going to set it now, or, or any time close to now, you're right, the communications are, are huge. They're an enormous part of this movie. The fact that Davy and his friend have walkie-talkies is pivotal in some scenes. The fact that people are leaving phone messages that somebody else doesn't get for uh, a little while 
is very pivotal plot-wise. So you would have to restructure the whole plot. But the main reason why I don't think I would want to see a reboot of this is because I can't imagine it not being terrible. Because I can't imagine this being greenlit for a reboot, a remake, today, and it not being greenlit because the producers get wind of the, oh, it's a spy thriller and it's about a video game. And they turn it into something about the latest VR game and half of the movie takes place inside the game in a VR thing. And it's they em- t- totally overemphasize that aspect of it as opposed to letting that be the MacGuffin. So I I don't think that it would be approached in the appropriate way. I don't think it would focus on the, the setting and the characters the way this story did and just allow the interesting high-tech things to be the MacGuffins that they should be. They serve a role in the story, but they're not there to give us lots of fancy things to look at on screen. The people are what we want to look at on screen. There's probably a fantastic thriller uh, action movie out there involving military secrets and a Pokemon Go with the serial numbers filed off, (laughs) but it wouldn't be anything like this film. So I'm, I'm absolutely with you on that. And this was not the first movie centered around uh, a main character who had an imaginary character he dealt with. It's by no means the last movie that dealt with a, an imaginary counterpart to a character. So we're going to see a lot more of those. Somebody making those might take a little bit of inspiration or learn a, bit, a little bit about how to do it well from this. But um, nothing that would lead me to suggest, yeah, we have a we need a remake of this so we can see today's version of Davy dealing with his dad and with Jack Flack. So for me, that re- leaves Rest in Peace, which of course is always an option, or Revive. And Revival means what happened in the original is canon, and this is something else that takes place in that same setting. I'm not saying I want to see a Revival, But I could see a revival that revisits Davy as an adult. Oh. Because I am curious about what kind of man he grows up to be, given this kind of experience. Does he choose a career in the military like his dad did? And we get a neat little speech from Dabney Coleman early in the movie about what it means to be a hero. And, you know, I joined the Air Force because I wanted to be a hero. That was before I learned that. You know, heroes are people who drive to Little League games and put bicycles together and take care of their kids when they're sick. That's what, that's what heroes do. Is Davey going to want to grow up to be a hero? And what kind of a hero is he going to want to be? And, oh, of course, a question that drives story is, is life going to let him be the kind of hero he wants to be? Maybe he grows up to be a perfectly well-adjusted guy and he's going to be the world's greatest dad. And something happens and he knows enough that he has to deal with it. I can see stories around grown Davy Osborne being interesting. The the idea of Davy Osborne taking taking a reverence to his gone friend with the tech business, the fact that this was smuggled that way, and having him lean into the growing IT stuff, realizing that the all of this happened because they were worried about this information. And you wind up with something that's a little bit a guy who goes into what looks like consumer tech, but he did some military stuff. He goes through that, but then goes back into civilian. And you get something that is, I'm almost reminded of the movie Under Siege, 
has the, it just like diehard. Oh, right, right. It, it, it has this entire moment where the guy who that none of the bad guys expected to be the dangerous man who can handle himself in a a bad situation is the chef. Having Davy be like the tech guy who can actually buckle down and deal with a thing could be very fascinating if you pull if you kind of connect some of the elements they put into this story here together for that example you're giving. I like that. And and if I were making a story like that, I would probably want to set it not today, but I'd want to set it 10 to 12 years after the events of Cloak and Dagger. Oh, put him in because the Because that puts him in him in his 20s and it puts us right near the beginning of the public internet. Oh. And the beginning of the World Wide Web or the popularity of the World Wide Web beginning in the mid 90s. That would be excellent. That would be an interesting time in which to set a technology espionage movie. That would be pr- that would be pretty interesting. So, yeah, I'm open-minded about a a revival, but I'm very happy to say or to accept rest in peace because yeah, the movie stands on its own. It does a good job with what it is, and I'll watch it again, I'm sure. Oh yeah, I I might want to watch this again as well, but it's going to be a bit before I do. That was intense. It is a movie that rewards viewings after you know the twists because you can really enjoy how they are set up when you're not being shocked and surprised by them. And I definitely hope that our our spoilery discussion did not t- reveal too many of the twists because <laughs> it gets twisty. It does. It does. But I think that uh, that brings us to the end of our discussion about uh, Cloak and Dagger. Mm-hmm. Uh, we certainly enjoyed watching it, enjoyed talking about it. We hope you've enjoyed the podcast. Thank you very much for downloading and for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with more tales of uh, media from the 20th century. And in the meantime, Ian, where can people find you? I can be found on Twitter as ItemCrafting, on Twitch as ItemCrafting Live, and on YouTube as ItemCrafting as well. And you can find me at by Matthew Porter on Twitter. You can find me at bymatthewporter.com uh, online. You can find me as by Matthew Porter on Twitch, uh, where I will occasionally do a very late night, Friday, early morning, Saturday, retro iOS game stream. We'll see if it expands beyond that, but that's been fun so far. And you can find the podcast online at immproject.com. There you will find our uh all of our back episodes you'll find links to our discord we'd love to hear from you there you'll also see a link to our contact page to our store where you can buy coffee mugs and t-shirts and other fun things and a link to our patreon where if you can uh can support there and uh want to help us keep the podcast going that would be awesome and actually we recently got a message from a uh listener who who, uh mentioned the fact that uh an 8K camera was being sent to Phobos, so someone does in fact care. <laughs> someone cares about Phobos. Yeah, who? Answers the question from our, our t-shirts and our coffee mugs. Yeah, who? <laughs> well, thanks again for listening. Uh, we'll be back soon. And in the meantime, go find something new to watch. <laughs>